Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, as we've been saying, the articles of impeachment have been unfurled. Uh, two of them. Uh, and look, this is something that a lot of people have been waiting a, lot of, a long time for, and some have said, oh, it's never going to happen. Uh, I've always been on the, as I said, I've always been on the, it's going to happen because the crimes are there. This is this is easily digestible. It's easy to understand, uh, you know, even for the most dull and the most dim. It's pretty simple. Uh, you had a president who said, do what I want or you don't get something. It, it's, it's really very simple. Uh, but here to share some thoughts on the articles of impeachment, what they are, what they mean, and where things maybe go from here. I've asked Jeremy Viduk to come talk with us. He's a research analyst with the Moscow Project at the Center for American Progress. Jeremy, thanks for taking time for us. Thank you for having me. So walk me through the, uh, two articles of impeachment, right? Yeah. The Democrats unveiled at their press conference this morning two articles of, of impeachment against President Trump. Number one is for abuse of power. That covers basically the Ukraine scandal. It covers President Trump's decision to effectively extort and bribe the president of Ukraine to publicly announce investigations into his political opponents in exchange for a White House meeting and military aid. And then the second article is on obstruction of Congress. It's on the months-long, unprecedented effort by this White House to stonewall Congress, to deny them of their constitutionally mandated role to oversee and investigate the president. And one of the things that's notable about these articles of impeachment is that they don't simply call for the impeachment and removal of Trump. They call for the impeachment, removal, and barring from future office holding of Trump. And that's something that we didn't see in the case of President Nixon when there were going to be articles of impeachment. Of course, he resigned before those are ever voted into effect, but we did see in the case of President Clinton. Right. So this is basically saying you committed a crime and uh, it, it reaches a level that not only should you be removed from office, but you you, you violated the public trust of the word of the point. You shouldn't be near any office. Yes, absolutely. And this is something that I would say isn't dissimilar to some of the things we've seen elsewhere in Trump's business life. For example, he is now, as I understand it, barred from operating a charity in the state of New York because he used his charity effectively to help himself. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, the sad reality is, is you know, and, and I, was, I was having this conversation with a friend earlier. Uh, you knew that we were going to get to this place because this is this is who Trump has always been. I mean, these these kind of stories have been swirling around him for, for, for decades. This kind of behavior, to me, not surprising at all, without even having to hear uh, all of the expert witnesses and all of the, the you know, the, the incredibly, um, you know, patriotic uh, bureaucrats that, that came forward, um, without knowing any of the stuff that they said, you know, this is, this is highly believable. This is what he's always done in business. This is the, the, the mentality. So I don't know why there's anyone who would be surprised that this is what he did. That's truly, to me, the scariest part of this is how unsurprised I was when I read the basic outline of this scandal about uh, three months ago now. On September 5th, the Washington Post became the first people to report it. And I was like, that sounds about right. That sounds exactly like, for example, what he did in 2016 when he held a press conference. He was asked about Russia hacking the DNC. This was in July. And he said... Russia, if you're listening, I would like you to find the 30,000 emails from my opponent. It was absolutely unsurprising to hear that Trump was abusing his office 
not just in terms of the election, but also for self-profit. We've seen over and over again the way Trump has turned his office into a product placement presidency as a way of marketing his properties in Mar-a-Lago, in Doral, when they said they were going to have the G7 summit there, and really all over the country and around the world. But again, I go back to you know the, the campaign. I go back to what we've known about Trump. None of that, you know, honestly, none of that is of surprise to me or I think any rational, thoughtful person who's paying attention. Mm-hmm. And the Russia scandal, I think, is really the thing that drove home this kind of behavior. And one of the other things that happened today is that one of the players in that scandal ended up at the White House getting his second White House meeting before Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, got his first one, the one that Trump was promising in exchange for these investigations. And that's Sergei Lavrov. That's the foreign minister of Russia. And the readout from this meeting so far is that Trump sternly warned Russia against interfering in the 2020 election. That doesn't match with when we saw Trump meet with Putin last, where he and Putin joked about Russian interference in American democracy or with what we know happened last time Trump met with Lavrov, which is that he basically said, I know that you guys interfered. I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, as long as it's for him, he doesn't have a problem with it. And that's the scary thing for me, because I have a lot of conservative friends who are like, well, yeah, so what? Uh, You know, (laughs) and I'm going, wait a second, when did Russia become our ally? And I don't know if you saw this uh, this Reagan uh, National Defense Survey that just came out, the second annual one that they've put out that, that really is, is scary and shocking to me in that uh, they claim 46% of military households view Russia as an ally, which is, which is really just really scary to me. And what's so striking about that is that even three years ago, it was baffling to the general public. It was questions over and over. I remember when the reports came out out of the... Uh, the Republican National Convention in 2016 that the Trump team had requested some changes that may have been seen as pro-Russia in the Republican Party platform. And that was something that people found incredible. It was something that people had trouble wrapping their heads around. You had many of the people who we now call never Trumpers. One of the things that they came out against in terms of Trump's candidacy was the fact that he was perceived as being so close to Putin. And now that has effectively become the party line of the Republican Party. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I have some folks who are saying, well, you know, Donald Trump's an asset of Putin. And and I'm going, I I don't know. I don't know. Asset. I have, you know, useful idiot, maybe. Um, I don't know. Direct asset. asset. But, you know, I I listened to Eric Swalwell, you know, do his uh, his examination during the hearing. And, you know, every question that he asked, you know, all roads seem to have led in this in this whole scandal back to Trump. And at the end of it, uh, it all benefited Putin. You know, it benefited Trump somewhat, but ultimately it it benefited Putin. So, you know, there's part of me that goes, I I can see how you get to that that Russian asset place. While I, I don't necessarily agree, I can see how you get there. The question about whether or not we can consider Trump an asset isn't really like, is there a formal relationship between Trump and Putin? You know, is Trump receiving money on the side? That's not really the question that you have to answer when you have to answer the question, when you ask, is Trump an asset of the Russian government? The Russian government sees assets as people who can be reliably expected to go out and push the party line on Russia. For example, to say that Crimea is actually part of Russia, not part of Ukraine, as Trump has. 
who can say that Russia didn't, didn't interfere in the 2016 election, as, for example, President Donald Trump has. And I would be remiss, by which I mean my boss would never forgive me, if I didn't mention that the Moscow Project has a podcast, we call it The Asset, where we broke down week by week the Russia scandal and now the Ukraine scandal in terms of who is benefiting from Trump's behavior. And like you said, again and again, we come back to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I mean, it's just, again, as you've pointed out, and I've said this before, I don't think there's a formal contract. I don't think they have a secret handshake, uh, you know, nothing like that. I think he's a useful idiot. Uh, and, and I know that's that's really, really bad to say about a sitting U.S. president, but it just seems that that's it. I mean, I think he has it in his head, uh, one thing, and he's just being manipulated, which, which I guess at the end of it is what most assets end up being, manipulated without even knowing it, right? That's the thing that is, I think, uh, very remarkable about Trump, and one of the things that makes him so different from any other U.S. president is how easily manipulatable he is. And one of the questions that we kept coming back to that was a big question during the Russia investigation, a big question during the Ukraine investigation, is this question of leverage. Who might have something over Trump or what might Trump have over another foreign leader? And the scary thing that we kept coming back to is, we're not sure somebody has to have something over Trump in order to manipulate him to act in their favor. All they need to do is to convince Trump that they're on his side, that they're helping him, that they like him, that he should like them. And that's effectively what I think we've seen with Trump and with Russia. And it's the exact opposite of what we've seen with Trump and with Ukraine. Trump heard early on from Putin, from Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, from people like Rudy Giuliani, that Ukraine was against him, Ukraine was out to get him, Ukraine was not the U.S.'s friend, despite a decades-long relationship in which Ukraine has been, at the very least, a much closer friend than Russia. And that's really all that it took for him to decide to extort the Ukrainian president in order to advance his own interests in the 2020 election. Right. And even more than that, I mean, all you had to do was whisper in his ear that, you know, there was someone from Ukraine who supported Hillary Clinton, and that's the end of it. That's something that I think is really important to discuss, is what exactly it was Trump wanted them to investigate, because what he said on that July 25th call, Republicans have sanitized it into this question of, was there an op-ed that a Ukrainian official wrote against Trump? Was there a Ukrainian-American staffer at the DNC who may have been against Trump? What Trump was actually asking them to look into, and what Giuliani's been asking them to look into, is this sprawling conspiracy theory that Russia didn't hack the DNC, the DNC sent the server to Ukraine, that's why CrowdStrike comes up, that CrowdStrike is supposedly Ukrainian, it's not actually, and that then there was this big cover-up that included Joe Biden firing the prosecutor and George Soros is somehow involved and on and on and on. That's what Trump was asking to have investigated was this conspiracy theory that he appears to have bought into that Giuliani has been pushing, John Solomon's been pushing, that people like that have been, again, whispering in his ear that there was this vast conspiracy against him in Ukraine. Even though every every uh, one of our intelligence agencies is saying, no, it was Russia stupid. Uh, it was Russia stupid. It wasn't the Ukraine. It was Russia stupid. Uh, still buying the conspiracy theory. And that's even people who Trump himself put in the positions to rebuke him. Chris Ray, the FBI director, said that. 
Kurt Volker, Trump's special envoy to Ukraine, not only a Trump appointee, but somebody who Republicans wanted called during the impeachment hearings. Over and over, these people have come out and they have said that this is a conspiracy theory. There is no basis to it. There is no reason for Trump to have actually believed the things that he was pushing to have investigated. Yeah, but again, never never let a good conspiracy go to waste. At least that seems to be what, what the Trump folks believe. And, you know, the thing is, is, you know, I look at this impeachment and, and I actually agreed with Jonathan Turley in that uh, there are so many voices we haven't heard from yet. I still, and, and, and maybe you can help me with this. I think this is going a little fast. Um, I, I think we know everything we need to know, but I still think uh, I want to hear from Rudy Giuliani. I still want to hear from Mick Mulvaney. I want to hear from the monster mustache, John Bolton. I think there's there's so much more to this than just the simple quid pro quo. I, you know, with John Bolton, who's somebody I despise and I, I'm, I want nowhere near the halls of power, says, I don't want to be part of your drug deal. I think that's pretty important and should be heard by the American people. I absolutely agree. There are, as the House Intelligence Committee report noted, a dozen people that the House tried to have come and testify, 10 of whom were actually given subpoenas to testify, who the White House instructed not to show and who on the White House's instruction didn't show. But I also think that uh, House Intel Committee Chairman Adam Schiff made a very good point this morning in that press conference where they announced the articles of impeachment. And that was that saying why don't we wait has effectively been a con by Trump's defenders to let him continue to cheat, that every day that Trump is not held accountable, that there is not an effort to prevent him from doing what he has been doing, is a day where he continues pressuring the Ukrainian government and maybe decides that, well, he's gotten away with it this long, maybe he'll go through on those threats that he's been uh, hinting at that he made on the White House lawn, and ask China to investigate the Bidens as well. So it'll be interesting to see how Democrats navigate those two questions. The right. desire to have more people testify, because I would be shocked if that didn't reveal more wrongdoing on Trump's part, versus the desire to strike while the iron is hot and to move forward with these things before Trump does anything even worse. No, I agree with you, but Jeremy, you know, the reality is, is, you know, I always thought when Congress issued a subpoena, your butt better be in the chair. And this is one of those moments where we, we better figure this stuff out because uh, I think it's obstruction of justice, just telling them they can't go. I think if, if Congress subpoenas you, your butt better be in that chair. And if you, even if you just plead the fifth to everything that they say, cause you have that right. Um, your butt better be in that chair or we come get you and lock you up. Right. And that's not a point that up until now was especially arguable in American politics. You had U.S. v. Nixon, which was, of course, a unanimous decision that said that, yes, Nixon did have to turn over the tapes, that no, the White House could not unilaterally obstruct the entire House impeachment investigation, the special counsel investigation into the president. And yet, for example, now we have at least one person on the U.S. Supreme Court who believes that case was wrongly decided, and he just so happens to be Trump's most recent appointee, Brett Kavanaugh. Right. Boy, isn't that convenient. It is very convenient, and that's something that, you know, the, the Trump administration and their allies have a habit of saying the quiet part out loud. And that's what Newt Gingrich did when, during an interview about the Kavanaugh impeachment fight, he was asked, well... What happens if the uh, 
investigation at the time it was the Mueller investigation subpoenas Trump and he said well we'll see if the Kavanaugh fight was worth it yeah no, see, again you know the one thing that this administration has gotten away with uh, while legislatively they've had no real victories other than that that giant tax ripoff um, they have packed the courts with crazy and that's a long-term plan that the Republican Party has had in place you know we saw going back into the Obama administration the utterly unprecedented obstruction by the Republican Party in the Senate of any effort to appoint somebody to not just the Supreme Court, but really any court for the last few years of the Obama administration. And that is, to a certain extent, why we've seen Republicans stick with Trump for so long. They're effectively saying, look, we got the judges that we wanted. They're putting into place a core of judges, many of them young, many of them remarkably inexperienced, many of them scarily right-wing, who will for decades hold up any progressive legislation while being a rubber stamp on conservative priorities and on Republican president's efforts to remain above the law. Yeah, the, the rule of law be damned. Our ideology trumps all of that. Uh, so let me ask you, going forward, so now that we've got these articles of impeachment, uh, when, do, when do we vote? When, when does? Because uh, I, I, I see this sailing right through the House. I see it being mostly a party-line vote, vote, maybe some Democrats uh, maybe not voting for it. Uh, how, how do you see this playing out in the coming days? Uh, that sounds about right to me. I don't know exactly when the vote has been scheduled for, but they're expecting it to come down uh, before the winter recess, before Congress goes home for the holidays. And then what we would see is, of course, the trial in the Senate. And there's been rumblings going back and forth on what exactly is expected to happen in that trial. There have been people who have been effectively saying Lindsey Graham should use the Senate Judiciary Committee as a platform to continue to regurgitate these conspiracy theories that Trump wanted investigated, to call Hunter Biden, call the whistleblower, call Alexandra Chalupa, call the people who are part of the conspiracy theory. Or there have been some rumblings, most recently today, suggesting that Graham will actually resist that, that he will run a fairly straightforward trial. I'm not 100% certain which I would expect. I honestly think we're more likely to see the former, given what we've heard from Lindsey Graham recently, given that he has talked about potentially opening an investigation into the Bidens. But that's anyone's guess, and we'll see. I assume come January. Yeah, we'll we'll see which one, which uh, which Lindsay shows up. You know, uh, you know, Doctor Jekyll or cover his hide, uh, because you know the other day, and I said you brought Lindsey Graham up. You know, he talked about censure, uh, and I was like, wow, did Lindsey Graham actually talk about the possibility of of censuring the president, which which would be a huge thing, and and would be a negotiating point of of saying, yeah, we know he did something wrong. Uh, now I'm sure Trump, you know, took him to task over that, but I was I was kind of I was kind of shocked by that. Uh, were you? I do find that very surprising, and I think part of what we're seeing is that we're seeing a whole bunch of different defenses thrown at the wall by the GOP to see which one sticks. Was there a defense? Because I'm missing it. I, all I saw yeah. was the process is bad. The Democrats are all bad, and I, I didn't actually see a real defense. I didn't actually even see them say, well, he's the president, he can do whatever the hell he wants. I didn't even yeah. see that, really. Defense is a, is a very uh, broad word, uh, as I would use it in this case. But the Washington Post, I believe, counted 26 different lines that Republicans tried to use in hearings and the media 
in order to avoid acknowledging Trump's culpability. And that is something that I think we might see in terms of what you just mentioned about Lindsey Graham, where they may say, well, yes, we think that what Trump did was wrong, but we don't think it rises to the level of impeachment. But you also hear Jim Jordan saying, well, this is all hearsay. And you hear Devin Nunes saying this is just an attempt to relitigate 2016 or Trump was just sincerely concerned about corruption. And I think that that's a cognizant effort to give any member of Congress, any Republican who wants to find a way to vote against impeachment and to protect Trump. It's an effort to come up with as many different ways for them to claim that they had some problem with how the case was laid in order to maximize the chances of Trump coming out of this without being removed from office. Well, I, I don't think there's a chance he's going to be removed from office. I just just my thought. I think he will be impeached in the House. As I said, I think it'll be mostly a party line vote. Uh, I, I don't see any Republicans outside of Justin Amash, who's no longer a Republican, uh, voting for it. But in the Senate, I, I expect maybe a couple of Republicans who are up for election in areas where it might it might actually matter. I see them maybe jumping, maybe, uh, but I, I don't see him being removed. And at the end of this, my problem has always been. Uh, I do see him coming out saying he was vindicated, which he, he he's not. But I, I do see an exonerated and all that stuff. Uh, so I see that being a problem as well. The thing about that is that that's something that Trump would almost certainly say regardless. Right. The Mueller investigation, the report came out. It's one of the most damning documents ever released about a sitting president, if not the single most damning document. Yep. I think the recent House Intel Committee report could give it a run for its money. But that report comes out. Democrats did not immediately leap to impeachment, and Trump claimed it as a total victory, total vindication. You know, I was cleared of all wrongdoing, when that is pretty explicitly not what the Mueller investigation found. So the question of, well, what will Trump say at the end of this trial if he, if it does not pass with the two-thirds of the Senate that it would need to remove him, to me, I don't think that's going to be especially different from what Trump would say if there hadn't been an impeachment investigation, if the impeachment articles were voted down in the House, if it never reached the Senate, no matter what, he is going to say that he has been completely exonerated. So what's important is at the very least to create the historical record to show that we knew that what Trump was doing was wrong in real time and that there were people who were doing whatever they could to prevent him from continuing to do wrong and subverting American democracy for his own interests. There you go. Jeremy, I appreciate the time. Uh, Good stuff. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. All right. Jeremy Vinook, research analyst there at the Moscow Project, the Center for American Progress. You want to check out the work that they're doing. We'll get links out. Quick break. Right back. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. 